Those sounds of kids running around out in the summer night, it's actually very sweet. Yay! Having a good time. All we need are fireflies. <clears throat> so again, let yourself find a way to sit that's comfortable and at ease. I've just returned um, from being away a couple of weeks. I guess last week was Ed Brown, yes? Those who came, teaching baking, Zen, and other, other follies. <laughs> a wonderful teacher. And um, I've just come back, among other things, teaching in New York, and then leading until last night, being with a group of men up in the, quite deep in the woods in Mendocino, um, for a week, um, a multicultural men's retreat put on by this very fine group called Mosaic, um, led by Maladomo Somme, this African uh, shaman, and Luis Rodriguez, a Latino poet and activist, and Michael Mead. And um, it was pretty amazing. I mean, I'm tired because we were up till three in the morning most nights doing everything from rituals and ceremonies, huge bonfires, sweat lodge kinds of things out in the, out in the forest to arguing and, and uh, <laughs> conflict. And there were all kinds. There were young men and guys from the inner city, from Oakland and Watts and East Los Angeles. And there were teachers and there were um, people who worked in the prison system. And then there were people who'd been in the prison system and there was um, you know, computer programmers, and and there were uh, um, artists, and um, it was a lot to try to get with all different um, classes and races and experience um, and ages to actually come to some way of being together um, without harming one another. <laughs> I'm serious. You know, the one basic rule that has happened in these conferences we've done for many years um, came from a, an, an African-American, a great African-American poet named Etheridge Knight who came, oh, more than 10 years ago to one of, those, one of these events um, and looked around and he said, you know, it makes me a little nervous. He said, I spent a lot of time in prison. He said, but this makes me really nervous. He said, being out in the woods with about a hundred white guys, you know. And so I want to ask before we do anything else, he said, I'm game for anything but one, one rule I'd like to ask, that there be no physical violence. So that's the rule. Other than that, you can say or do what you need to. And what we really sought for in our time together through myth and drumming and um, song and storytelling and incredible rituals and African, Latino kinds of cultural um, ceremonies, what we were seeking for underneath it all was a kind of respect that each person in that room could respect the other. And so uh, over the course of this summer when I have been here, the last Mondays I've been around, I've gone back to doing a series of talks on simplicity, kind of the ground of practice. And I want to maybe finish it up tonight or the next Monday um, by continuing to talk in that vein about the quality of respect, the heart's respect. If you read in the Buddhist um, history, in the texts from the Digha Nikaya, there are these wonderful stories about the life of the Buddha, the kind of great myth that carries 2,500 years of Buddhist teaching. And the last um, days of the Buddha in the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, he sets up the keys for practice to follow um, after he has gone. And he does it in a number of ways. One is really um, through story, through mythology. And in fact, that, that whole text begins with um, almost like once upon a time. And it tells this great story of the Buddha. And it ends with the phrase, and this is how it was in the old days. And before it ends, the Buddha is there lying down between these two um, trees, which in the, 
in the dry season which have filled with blossom the minute he lies down between them to make his deathbed. And his attendant, Ananda, says, do not die here, way out in the country in this daub and wattle village. I'm sure some anthropologist stuck that phrase in, but anyway, you know, this dusty, muddy little village. You, the great enlightened one, should go back to Banaras or one of the cities of India and be honored by the kings, and, and, uh, and that's where you should die. And the Buddha said, do not say so, Ananda, which is what he often said to Ananda. He said, in fact, this place was a great kingdom. Under the king Mahasudasana, um, the, the wheel-turning monarch in a previous era, um, there was a palace that was so great it had 84,000 gates coming into it, and the roads went in every direction, north, south, and east, and west, and there wasn't an hour when there wasn't carts and drums and timbrels and, and merchants and, and uh, artisans and artists coming and going. The ponds were filled with lotuses and fish and the fields were filled with abundant food and um, uh, the court was filled with the finest of um, poets and philosophers and he went on and on. And the, the realm was one of peace and justice. And what he describes is really the mythological kingdom um, the kingdom that is at the center of the world where our nobility is to be found. He said, so do not say that this spot is not a fine place to die. This has been this great kingdom, describes it all. And in fact, um, what, the, what the text in a way says is that anywhere can be that great kingdom, the Jerusalem, if you will, not the outer Jerusalem, which has all those problems, but the symbolic um, kingdom of justice and righteousness, the center of the world, anywhere where there is nobility of spirit becomes a great castle, becomes a great kingdom, becomes a great garden. So then Ananda said, well, you are dying. How will we keep the teachings alive? Who will lead us? Um, who will you appoint to lead us? And the Buddha said, I will not appoint a leader or an elder from this great kingdom, this timeless kingdom, you must follow the Dharma, which is the Sanskrit word that means the truth, the way things are, the law, the Tao, the eternal truth. If you are to awaken, it is not someone else who will awaken you, but you must be diligent. You must pay attention. Well, how shall we live? Kind of went on. Um, what shall we do? The Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness or resign from the world unless they feel called upon to do so. But the teachings of the Buddha require every person to free themselves from the illusion of self, to cleanse one's heart, to give up grasping and fear and lead a life of righteousness. And whatever people do, whether they remain in the world as artisans or merchants or officers of the king or retire from the world as a mendicant, let them put their whole heart into the task they have chosen. Let them be diligent and energetic and surely then, through their attention, joy, peace, wisdom and bliss will arise in their hearts as well. This kind of instruction. And Ananda said, well, give us the last teachings before you go. You know how it is with these kind of situations. <laughs> what is the last to say? And, and the last words of the Buddha, above all, be mindful. Above all, how shall we live? How shall we practice? Above all, bring the quality of mindful respect, of attention to see what is true in front of you to your life, and all the Dharma will follow from that. And this quality of mindfulness could be called attention, or deep attention, <clears throat> or sacred attention, if you will. Or in another language, it is the heart's respect for what is so. Now, how do we keep this quality of respect alive? 
since I'm coming from this men's retreat and still living in part, although I'm um, kind of, well, I'm still halfway there. It's kind of uh, in the woods and uh, the mythology and the images of it. And it's an amazing thing to go out in the middle of the huge redwood forest at night and come down to a stream that's been prepared for a ritual and see 500 candles blazing under the redwood trees, making a, a kind of an arc, a circle, um, within which the men will go into the deepest pool in the stream after making a prayer to cleanse themselves of what they need to let go and then be met by men taken out of dried or have their, you know, their feet, their feet dried and their bodies dried and then, then sung to as you come out, you know, in the middle of the night. It's quite fantastic kinds of images. Anyway, so once upon a time, O oh, nobly born, O oh, you too, who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, if you remember who you really are. In the time of King Arthur, so we'll use that as a story. In the time of King Arthur, the king was wandering out in the deep forests, at the far edge of the kingdom, exploring as kings do to see what the realm held. And it turned out that it was getting darker and darker and later and later, and he was lost in the deepest part of the woods and the forest, and a great hunger and thirst came upon him, and everywhere he turned with his great steed there were more trees and bushes and mountains and hills and brambles, and he could not get out. And it got darker and darker, and finally he said, I will have to rest in this forest at night. I cannot find my way out. And just as he was thinking that, he came upon a little clearing, and in the clearing was a, a small and elegant stone well. So he sat, took, got down from his horse, took a seat by the well, and being thirsty, he drew the water up from the bucket in the well and took a deep drink and said, I will be refreshed and rest here tonight. And all of a sudden, as he was beginning to take his ease, he heard the sound of a great horse galloping through the forest. You know, this is bedtime story, right? A great horse galloping through the forest, coming toward him. He sat up, alarmed, pulled out his sword, waited to see who would come. And the horse's hoofs slowed down, and it began to come quite slowly. And then he looked and he saw another beautiful white stallion. And he could see in the moonlight, not who was riding, but a cape that was covered in designs of silver and gold, a cloak, and then this beautiful long hair, feminine hair, coming out of the cape. And he thought, oh, this is someone quite special coming. <laughs> and this great st steed with this incredible being, it looked like on it, rode up to the well and then turned around and looked at him. And when he looked into her face, he saw the ugliest woman's face he had ever seen. A hag whose eyes were the different directions and hair here and, you know, one teeth all different, you know, going different directions and blotched skin. And she's actually different traditions in, in the old Celtic tradition. She's called the Hag of Bera. You know, and in uh, India she is called Kali, and in the Russian mythology she's called Baba Yaga, and she is the one who lives out in the wilderness and stirs the pot that contains all of the, all of the things of the world, and she knows everything. And she got down, and she said, you took a drink from my well. <laughs> and I said, yes, well, I was thirsty, she said. I, I see you are a king, and yet you steal from me? He said, I am a king, and what can I grant you? She said, you're lost, aren't you? You'd like to get out of this forest. You will never get out unless I show you the way. He said, well, I owe you something, madam, for this drink, and I would indeed like you to show me the way out of the forest. If there's anything I can grant you as king, why, I would, in, that's in my power, I would do so. She smiled at this and said, yes, uh, there is something I would wish for. You have a great night, the greatest that time. 
Sir, Sir Gawain, like Lancelot, one of the great knights. She said, I would, uh, I am in need of a husband, a man, and I would take him to wed. And if you grant me that, since you are the king, and you can grant what, what I offer, what, or what you offer, what I wish, um, then I will show you the way out. And his heart sank. He thought, what am I going to say to Gawain, <laughs> you know? <laughs> But then he thought, well, at least it's him and not me. <laughs> now it goes. So, all right, I can live with this. <laughs> so he agreed. And she said, then I will return in the morning and show you the way out. But he didn't sleep well that night. He was pretty restless, thinking about going back and meeting with the knights. So finally he said, all right. The morning came. He said, I must ask you something. Is there no way that I can give you something else instead of Sir Gawain in marriage. And the hag looked at him and said, well, there's one possibility. There's a question. And if you can answer this question for me, in the next year, you come in one year and answer this question, then I will free you from this request. He said, why, of course, just give me the words that you wish me to answer. She looked at him and she said, I would like to know the answer to this question. What is it that women want? <laughs> what is it that women want? And then she showed him the way out of the forest and he went back. And he called the knights together and he said, I was in the forest and by this well and this amazing being came and oh, there was a little problem, <laughs> Sir Gawain, but I think we'll work it out. We only have to answer this one question. So naturally the knights were rather motivated and they began to go out through the kingdom with great books instead of just their swords and interview women everywhere. What is it you want? Money, um, a beautiful home, wonderful children, uh, privilege, um, uh, power, um, uh, to be left alone, um, <laughs> you know, all the kinds of things that women might want. And they listed them all in the books. Thought, well, we must have the answer. They went back collected it all, and a year later, Arthur took the book, the summary, and rode out into the deep, far forest, and of course, as these stories go, came to the well, and there was the hag waiting. Said, I see you've returned, king, you kept your promise. King said, I do so. Well, do you have an answer? And he said, I have many answers, and he began to show her all the things that the women had said. She kept shaking her head, no. Nope, 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 to the last line, no. He said, well, I'm sorry, I have not answered your question. She said, that's right, so I will return with you and we will have a big wedding. <laughs> he said, a big wedding, Sir Gawain actually was thinking of a rather smaller affair. <laughs> he said, no, no, we must celebrate. <laughs> so she went back with him, came into the court, met her betrothed, and they called together all of the chefs and all of the uh, musicians and all of the nobles and all of the artisans, and they made this great feast and banquet and had a wedding. And Sir Gawain, being a knight, went through with it as best he could, and then it was over, and they retired to the bridal chamber. Sir Gawain sat down, dignified and knight-like. She, on the other hand, took off a few of her garments and sat on the bed and said, Oh, husband, after waiting for a while, nothing happened. Oh, husband, will you not kiss the bride? He took a deep breath, knight that he was, considered his vows, his courage, was kind of reluctant. She looked at him and said, you are a knight, are you not? A brave knight, I hear. He took up his courage and came over and gave her a kiss. And the moment he gave her a kiss, 
as happens, she turned into this most beautiful maiden, this beautiful princess. And she said, ah, you have released me from this spell, in part. You know how it goes, in part. <laughs> and he was, he was so thrilled things had turned out that much better than he thought. <laughs> she said, but the spell is only half broken. And now I must pose an even more difficult question to you. For by this kiss, you have freed me so that I may be beautiful like this for you and for us together all night long, every night. But I will return to the form of the hag in the day. Or, if you choose, I can be beautiful and gracious like this as your partner in the day. But I will return to the form of the hag at night. You must let me know what you would choose. So he sat and meditated for a while. <laughs> a certain dilemma there, yes. Would you choose day or night? Hmm? And his heart was torn because he wanted the love of this beautiful woman. He wanted this connection. And it was the beauty that parts beauty. But on the other hand, he also wanted her to shine within the world and all that he did. What to do? He struggled and wrestled. And finally, after a long time, he looked at her and he said, I cannot decide, and I will leave it to you to choose. What would you have me say, daytime or night? And the moment he spoke these words, a great light came, and however beautiful she had been, the radiance of her heart grew tenfold to that. And she looked at him and said, with these words, you have truly broken the spell, for you have discovered what it is that women really want. And what it is that women want, she said, is their sovereignty. Sovereignty is an ancient and wonderful word close to the word nobility. It means that a woman or a being wants that respect that allows them to live the life they have been given and not someone else's life. Do you understand this story? So to awaken to our own Buddha nature is to awaken the king or queen of the realm within ourselves. And in the stories of the Buddha, all these people would come and ask him questions and get teachings and have debates and dialogues with him. And when they were finished, no matter how it went, maybe they'd say, this was wonderful, I appreciate your teachings, I'm changed by it, or I will consider this. Whatever the end of the dialogue, whenever it came, the Buddha would then look at them and say, now it is time for you to do as you see fit. It's a very wonderful phrase. The Buddha didn't say, now it's the time for you to go and do what I told you, you know, or follow my dharma, or do what I think you should do. Now is the time, as if to bow to this person, for you to go and do what you see fit. So even in the position of the Buddha, he is offering this respect to the other as well. And when you read the texts, where the Buddha speaks of husbands, or lovers, or wives, or parents, or children, or, or um, merchants, or employees, um, or um, officials and uh, citizens. They're all about respect, for each one in their role to respect the other. To be awake, to see to be awake is to see with a respectful heart. That is what wakefulness brings to us, and brings through us. A respectful heart for all things. To have the capacity to bow to what is, whatever it happens to be. Zen Master Edo Roshi. People often ask, 
how Buddhists answer the question, does God exist? The other day I was walking along the river and the wind was blowing, and suddenly I thought, oh, the air, it does exist, it touches my cheeks. We all know the air is there, but unless the wind blows against our face, we forget it, we're not aware. But here in the wind, I was suddenly awake, yes, we live in the sea, the ocean of air and the sun too, and suddenly I was aware of the warmth of the winter sun shining through the bare trees, its brightness, all of this offered completely free, completely gratuitous, simply there for us to enjoy, and without my knowing it, completely spontaneously, my hands came together and I realized that I was making a bow. And it occurred to me that this is all that matters, the whole of the teachings, that we can just take a deep bow, just that. To be able to bow in this way, to bow to what is and see with a respectful heart, means even to bow to terrible things. Bow to the warfare in the world and the continuing stupidity of the arms race bow to the truth of starvation in some places and food in others, bow to the evil in the world and face it as well as the beauty of the world. Because before we can work to make change, we have to see things as they are. And believe me, even evil needs to be respected because it's so powerful. In the most central teachings of the Buddha that are threaded through every tradition, Zen and Theravada, insight meditation, and the Tibetan teachings up to the very highest of the practices, is the quality of wakefulness, of pure awareness that can be with things as they are and open to them without struggle, without making an argument, without refutation. There is the most wonderful way, said the Buddha, for the awakening of the heart of all living beings to coming to freedom. And it is this respectful attention to what is. This is the key to listen, to learn. With the breath, the idea isn't to fix your breath. I've got a shallow breath, I want to make it deep. But to listen, how is the breath now? Is it deep? Is it short? Is it shallow? The breath begins to teach us rather than us directing it. Or with the body. Such respect comes through mindfulness to the body. You know, often we get the idea that if we do it right, we should be controlling our body or breath or something. Try to control your body. I mean, you can take it to the gym, you know, and work out and jog it and things like that. But suppose you say, don't grow old. Don't lose any more hair, right? Don't sag. Does it listen? It simply doesn't. It does what it does. And so people use spiritual practice, often misuse spiritual practice, to try to kind of straighten themselves up and make themselves better in some way. Give up. It's hopeless, right? <laughs> that project. It's an endless... Have you seen that? I mean, it's okay. You can do your therapy and jog and all those things that heal in some ways. But fundamentally, it's a misperception because what's needed is to remember who we really are underneath all that. This book by Joan Tollefson, who is a Zen student, who was born with part of one arm missing. And she said, I went into the Zen center and I learned to sit. And in Zen, we make this circle with our hands at our navel, this mudra, it's called. And I would try to sit like everyone else, only I didn't want, know what to do with this arm that had part of the arm missing. And no one told me. And I just tried to find my way. And I was sitting and sitting and got more and more difficult over the years that I was sitting. And finally, one day, I was getting ready for my meditation practice, and I looked in the mirror, and I realized that I had never really looked at my arm. I was, I don't know, 29 years old, and I realized I had never really looked at myself. And that was the Zen teaching. 
to look and see my body as it actually was. Not the way we want it to be, but the way that it is to listen to it, to respect it as it, as it is. Remember this poem from John Ciardi, this poet, where he writes, an ulcer, other diseases, an ulcer is an unkissed imagination taking its revenge for having been jilted. It is an undanced dance, an unpainted watercolor, an unlived dream. So when we bring this respective attention to the body, we listen to what this body needs, and we live in it in a way that is both compassionate, attentive, wise. The same is true for the heart, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Whether we sit in meditation or bring the spirit of our meditation alive in our life, every one of us will have incredible changes of grief and loss and love and beauty, of praise and blame and joy and sorrow. There is no one who will not experience this. Can we let ourselves actually have the richness of this feeling life and bow to it and live with it rather than push it away? Because only through feeling will your heart open, will that great heart of a Buddha awaken in you. At this men's retreat, there was one man who spoke in one of our groups, and he said he had been, as a young man, he had gone to Israel. He was Jewish. And he wanted to live there, and because he wanted to live there, they said, if you live here, you've got to join the army. We have to defend ourselves. So he went in the Israeli army. He was trained with, you know, automatic weapons, Uzis and, you know, mortars and things like that. And he said, I was up in the north, kind of this little station guarding something on my military duty. And I was supposed to look out and make sure there was nothing bad happening. And I was there with my gun looking out. And across the valley, a little way across on this hillside, I saw a herd of goats and a young eight or nine-year-old Palestinian girl who was the goat herd that had just wandered over into this hill. And in the late afternoon sunlight, I, I was watching her. And all of a sudden, she stood up and she just began to dance, this little goat herd. And he said, I watched her dance, the joy of her all alone in the hill with her goat just dancing. And I put down my gun and I said, I cannot shoot these people or any people ever again. And I went and I quit the army and I left Israel. That was the story he told. That was a really important story in this particular group. Respect for emotions, for beauty, and for suffering, because we have them both. And without respecting them both, the heart cannot open. Respect for the mind, that amazing thing that never stops thinking, right? That will think anything, that has no pride at all. As the Buddha says, how can a troubled mind understand the way? When you meditate, you see how busy it is. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts, unguarded. But once mastered, once understood with mindfulness, no one can help you as much, not even your mother or father. So we begin to pay respectful attention to the body, to the feeling life, to the mind. This is what frees us. The Buddha said, you can be free, but not by doing something anyplace else, only here within this body and mind. And respect for the Dharma, for the teachings, which point to the great dance. Dharma is the, the truth, the way that it is. We're so trained to do and fix and take care of and be in charge and, you know, like we're running the world. The Buddha said, this land is mine, these children are mine, 
These are words of folly from a man who does not know that even he is not his. Look at your mind, say, all right, don't think. Will it listen? I don't want to feel these feelings. Go away. Stop feeling them. Does it work? Tell your body, don't grow old. Try owning your children, getting them to do what you want them to do, right? Or your partner, your lover. This land is mine. These children are mine. These are words of folly, said the Buddha. When we see with respect, we discover that each thing has its own nature. And we can move or release the small sense of self, the body of fear that we live in, and reawaken to this, what my teacher called the one who knows, this great spacious awareness that is always present. You know about freedom. You already know. You know about compassion. You already know. It is in you. And when we pay respectful attention, those qualities are free to open in us. It is like all great spiritual work. O nobly born, it is a shift of identity from the small sense of self, from our grasping and our fears and all these things we're caught up in. Yes, there's grasping, you bow to it. There's fear, thank you for your opinion, right? (laughs) But here we are again. We're just here, aren't we, in this great space of being alive. And when we do it, everything changes. Nothing changes and everything changes. Some friends of mine some years ago who were involved in the anti-nuclear, anti-war movement very actively in England were terribly upset when we started to station cruise missiles in England. I don't know, 10, 15 years ago when they were still in the Cold War. Like More missiles we need and this base of cruise missiles that could not be stopped by anything and so forth. And they they were just... Um, terrified by the nuclear proliferation. And because they were the leaders of one of the great anti-war groups in uh, England, after a lot of protests and a lot of discussions with the government, they finally got a meeting with the leading um, general uh, of England, who at that time was the head of uh, NATO, to, d- to discuss their, their concerns. And because they were wise, think about how to go into this, what, what to talk about. They sat down with this man at the table, and their first statement was, it must be very difficult for you knowing that the security of all of your people rests on your shoulders. This was the respect that they gave to him. It must be difficult to hold the security of a free Europe on your own shoulders. And with that statement, this man began to speak about how difficult it was. And they could begin to have a conversation rather than a battle. Do you understand that quality of respect? This is the kissing of the hag. This is the willingness to pay respect to what is in front of us so that it transforms itself in some way. There was a man who spoke at this retreat who works with youth in uh, Watts in East Los Angeles. He works with young men who've been out on the street in gangs and so forth. He said, I had a young man this last year who, who I uh, had met and I started to work with who'd been in a series of foster homes. I'm sure he was abused, really terrible. And then when he became 13 or so, um, he ran away and he lived on the streets, homeless, in cars for eight years. And then he got violent. You know, he was just so enraged that he wanted to kill himself or somebody else. And he was arrested and I finally got to work with him. And I heard all his stories and I learned about his life. And I realized that he had no, no one who loved him and no dream, no vision. 
He said, he, you know, I asked him about it, he, you know, I don't know where I'm going to go next, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then one day he said, I realized working with this young man, it was in, you know, March or whatever, I realized that it was his birthday. So I got a small thing, some small thing, and I brought it, I wrapped it up, I gave it to him, and I said, happy birthday. And his eyes got wide and he looked at me and he said, no one has ever said that to me before in my life. No one. And then he said we had a conversation about whether it would be possible for him to have more birthdays, whether he could even begin to vision a life where he would live instead of die. The quality of respect, we need it. We need it from one another to blossom, to grow. To see each other as, as you would in Mexico or Tibet or, or Palestine or, or, or Afghanistan or any indigenous culture where people still say, oh, oh brother, oh uncle, oh, oh sister, that we really are family. To listen with a respectful heart is to remember who we really are. Alexander Solzhenitsyn kind of expands it this way. He said, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were simply necessary to round them up and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? This quality of respect is the basis for the Compassionate Listening Project, started by the Fellowship of Reconciliation, some Quakers, friends, people I know. And they go around the world and listen to people that no one else wants to listen to. They went to Libya to sit down with Muammar Gaddafi in the worst years and said, please, we want to hear what it's like for you. They went to Latin America and sat and listened to the worst dictators and to the revolutionaries in the mountains. Tell us your side and tell us your side. You know, they went to Lebanon and listened to all the people, the Syrians and the different factions in Lebanon, to Bosnia and Armenia. We want to hear your side. Their belief being that when someone is listened to and understood with respect, everything can change. Try it in your family. You'll see, it really works. You know, I mean, there's this whole book, I don't have it with me, but I might have a little passage from it of uh, dialogues of people, you know, their difficulties. Here we are, Jim saying, What's wrong? His wife, Mary, nothing. So then he says, fine, and turns on the TV, and nothing more is ever said, and they get further apart. Or dialogue number two, Jim says, you seem upset, what's wrong? Nothing, says his wife. Oh, look, hon, I hate this distance. It makes me feel really awful. Have I done anything that hurts you? Well, yes, you have. You know, how come you invited those people over, and you said we were going to do this? You never even talked to me. Well, I'd like to talk to you, but it's a little hard when you're yelling at me. Do you think we could just talk about it? <laughs> I suppose we could. All right, let's begin. There's this different kind of... The quality is so simple. You can say, um, what did you mean? And you can say, what did you mean? Kind of with an attitude, and you get one response. Or you can say, what did you mean? And really want to learn. And you get an entirely different response. I mean, I see it in my own marriage. The worst, um, I mean, or the most frequent difficulties we get into, I would say, are when we're both tired or exhausted or, you know, when we've both been doing a lot of caretaking and things like that and, you know, we want to be taken care of and then the other person has problems and they want to get taken, you know, and kind of look at each other and, well, we'll struggle over it. You've got to do that or I've done enough already or whatever. And, and I say, listen, can't, it's... It, it's your turn to be the grown-up for the day, right? <laughs> I want to get taken care of a little bit. Well, that's not fair. You did. You know, I mean, that's where it happens for us in some way. 
Um, and when we can just bow to each other and say, you're tired, aren't you? It's been a hard time, hasn't it? We've gone through all this stuff. This has been difficult. And just acknowledge that with respect. All the difficulty becomes workable. And it's not just people. Here's a story for you. A man began to give large doses of cod liver oil to his Doberman because he'd been told this stuff was good for dogs. Each day he would hold the head of the protesting dog between his knees, force its jaw open, and pour the liquid down its throat. One day, the dog broke loose and spilled the cod liver oil on the floor. Then, to the man's great surprise, it returned to lick the spoon. That's when he discovered that what the dog had been fighting was not the oil, but his method of administering it. There is no one who doesn't long for respect. I remember the story of the great um, hypnotherapist, psychiatrist Milton Erickson, I think his name was, who went to a state mental hospital one time back in the 50s or whatever and was shown a particular patient who, whose delusion was that he believed he was Jesus, which of course he was. The problem was he thought that nobody else, that he was the only Jesus, but we'll leave that one aside. And so Milton went up to him, you know, and all these people said, okay, how's this great man going to work with him? Because he was recalcitrant, he was, this guy wasn't going to work with anybody, he didn't, you know, they were trying to get him out of his delusion. And Milton just looked at him and said, I hear you're a carpenter. And the man said, yes, that's right. He said, well, we have some work that we need done here at the hospital. And it was just that little turn to bow to the man where he was. The elderly want respect. The young, the environments, the teenagers, the ones, you know, the teens that are struggling and, and have this tremendous bravery and don't give up whatever about anything. That, that spirit in them needs respect. The environment needs respect. The, the, the poor, the disenfranchised need respect. The rich need respect. The brown and yellow and red and black and pink people need respect. I mean, everybody. The Croats and the Serbs and the Bosnians and the Palestinians and the Israelis. It's like that story of the little kid, you know, who went out to the restaurant to, with his parents. Um, to have dinner and a few other people and the waitress took all the orders and finally came to him and said, what will you have? He said, oh, um, I'd like a hot dog and a root beer, please. And then the mother interrupted, he'll have meatloaf, mashed potatoes, carrots, and a glass of milk. And the waitress looked up and said, uh, do you want um, ketchup or mustard on that hot dog? <laughs> wrote it down and walked away, and the little boy looked up and he said, she thinks I'm real. <laughs> but this is all, you know, one level of it. It gets deeper than this. What about when you get in the deepest part of the forest? You know, the real griefs of the world. Um, the racism, the warfare, the the prisons that we have in this country filled with two million people so that if you're born in poverty or you're born brown or black in the wrong part of this country, you're pretty, as a, as a young man, you're pretty much destined for the prisons, like the gulags. What about that? How do you bring the spirit of respect to this? A story. This is from a man who's a police officer. Now he said, there are two theories about being a cop and crime, how to deal with it. The anti-crime guys say you have to think like a criminal. And some police learn that so well they get a kind of criminal mentality themselves. 
But how I'm trying to work is different. I see that human beings are essentially pure and of good nature by birthright. And that's what I'm looking for, even as a cop and everyone I meet. It's interesting how it works when you hold that vision, even when you get in bad conflict. I arrested this very angry Mexican-American man who singled me out for real animosity when I had to take him to the paddy wagon. He spit in my face. Now that was something. And he went after me with a chair. We handcuffed him and put him in the truck. Well, on the way, I just had to get past this picture of things, and again I affirmed to myself, this guy and I, somewhere deep, are brothers. So we got to the station, and I was moved somehow to say, look, if I've done anything wrong to offend you, I apologize. The paddy wagon driver looked at me as if I was totally nuts. <laughs> Next day I had to take him for him where he'd been housed overnight to a criminal court. When I picked him up, I thought, well, if you trust this spirit, you're not going to handcuff him. And I didn't. And we got to that spot in the middle of the corridor, which was the place where if he jumped me, that was going to be the place. And he stopped suddenly, and so did I. And then he said, you know, I thought about what you said yesterday, and I want to apologize. And I just felt this deep appreciation. Turned out on his rap sheet, he'd done a lot of time in a couple of real bad prisons and had trouble with the guards there. And I symbolized something. And I saw that turn around and saw that anything can be changed with enough respect. That means even respect for Mara, the evil one in the story of the Buddha. You know, boy, if you don't have respect for greed or hatred or delusion, you haven't looked around the world because it's a great force. Each one of those is a great force that deserves respect for how it comes in us and how it takes other, other human beings. These are not small forces. They create wars and the rise and fall of civilizations. And yet when the Buddha sits in these stories and Mara comes to see him, I like the story that Thich Nhat Hanh tells. Mara comes and wants to see the Buddha. And Ananda, the attendant, says, no, no, he's not here. He doesn't want the Buddha conversing with Mara. But Buddha hears, did someone come to see me? Oh, Mara, it's my old friend. Invite him in for tea. Sits down, how are you doing, Mara? How is it? Oh, being an evil one is really tough. <laughs> Buddha said, well, being a Buddha is not so easy either, you know. <laughs> to bring respect to our greed, to our fear, to our delusion, to the judging mind, to all of those energies as well, to the quality of addiction, to look at and touch with understanding and compassion what my Cambodian teacher called the landmines in the heart. You know, he was doing landmine work in Cambodia, but he said the real landmines are the landmines in the heart. And once there is that kind of respect, then things begin to change. There was a man in this event, about 40 years old, an African-American man from Watts, who was the leader of this program for young men coming out of the gangs. He'd done 11 years in Pelican Bay in prison, and then he'd been out for the last six or seven years. Very well-spoken, eloquent, kind of powerful presence. And at one point he said he was an elder, 39, 40 years old. He said in this, he said, where I come from in this culture, if you're a black man and you reach 40 years old, you're an elder. You know, and he spoke like an elder. He spoke like somebody who had really suffered and didn't want other people to have to go through the suffering that he had gone through. So this respect, this quality of respect, is what frees the heart. Think about it. What asks for respect in your life, your garden, your lovers, your children, your enemy? I like this poem. I use it often. It's by the greatest American calligrapher, Lloyd Reynolds. It's in his hand. It says, a bug crawls over the paper. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get. <laughs> you know? 
Respect for even the little things. Yeah. Uh, respect for your sorrows. When people ask for a little attention, it's really a great thing they ask for, a little attention. From Meher Baba, he says, the scope of service is not limited to great gestures, heroic acts, huge donations to public institutions. They also serve who express their love in little things, a word that gives courage to a broken heart, a smile that brings hope in the midst of gloom, a glance that wipes out bitterness in the heart is also service, though there may be no thought of that in it. When taken by themselves, all these things seem to be small, but life is made up of many such small things. And if these small things were ignored, life would not only be unbeautiful, it would be unbearable. So simple. One could say that the whole practice of awakening and all the teachings of dana, of generosity, of heart, of sila, of not harming, caring for other beings out of compassion, of wisdom and awakening to the way things are, of liberation, are all matters of respect, a kind of deep trust in this world. Perhaps the deepest respect is rests on something so much greater than all our ideas about how things are supposed to be. The most fundamental truth is the mystery of life, where we come from, how it unfolds, how we got in this strange body with a little bit of fur and a few patches and a hole in one end where we stick dead plants and animals and move it around, you know. I mean, it's bizarre, this human incarnation. It is. Little wiggly things at the end. There's that very sweet baby that was in here, you know, cooing while we were meditating. Took a new incarnation. Good luck, kid. You know. How did we get into this? The deepest respect of mindfulness is to this mystery. What one Zen master called, don't know mine. Who are you really? Don't know. What is this life? Don't know. What is consciousness? Don't know. How about love? You explain love to me. Don't know. I said, good. Keep this don't know mind. So people went to the Buddha and they said, is the world eternal or does it have a beginning? Where did the Buddhas go when they die? Where did they come from? All these kinds of philosophical questions. And the Buddha simply said, these are matters on which I've expressed no opinion. The idea from the Buddha is not to have a particular opinion, but instead the invitation to take this seat halfway between heaven and earth and open with beginner's mind. The goal of practice is to have a beginner's mind to this mystery. Who is listening as I speak? Who are you? Don't know. Really? Who are you? Don't know. Feel that not knowing, that space that simply is present and aware. That is your innate freedom. Don't know. Rest in that. It's fine. And all that you need comes out of that. Compassion, ease, understanding. You are invited to take the seat of the Buddha in the middle of life. And then amazing things happen. If you can open without a lot of opinions and instead be present this moment and this one, for the person in front of you and the task you've been given and this body and all the things that troop out of nothingness into fill your day and then disappear at the end of the day as you go to dream. All these amazing things. Compassion will grow of itself. Your children will be contented. Your neighbors will be happy that you live next door to them. You know because the heart gets free with this respect. I think I told last week or whenever it was <clears throat> that story of the Dalai Lama being a couple of weeks ago, you know, staying in this hotel in California and before he left after all the teachings, lining up the hotel, the staff, you know, the people and the cooks and the, you know, the Chicano room 
cleaners and the you know the people who are working out in the garden and going down one by one and thanking them giving them the same attention that he gave all the rest of the people who came to the teachings and how excited they were the dalai lama yeah, i never heard of the dalai lama this great king this is what a ki- what it means to be a king or as thomas merton um, put it again he said The saints are what they are, not because of their sanctity or holiness, but because the gift of sainthood makes it possible for them to admire everyone else. That's really what makes a saint, someone who can see the beauty in another being. And when we're not trying to get somewhere else, but actually here in the moment, in this mystery, then we see its beauty. And out of that beauty comes amazing joy and ease and tears because you let yourself weep for the sorrows of the world and amazing love, all of it. As Mary Oliver puts it, when death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse, to buy me and snaps the purse shut. I want to step through that door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness. And therefore I look at everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy and as singular and each body as a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. It's a great task to awaken in this world. There are a lot of things that would put us to sleep. But we know that it's possible because we've had those moments and they connect with that nobility, that place in us that really remembers who we are. Use this human life for beautiful things. It's been given to you for that. Let's sit for a moment. O nobly born, remember your sovereignty, sons and daughters of the Buddha. Let that great heart of compassion and freedom awaken in you. And in the week ahead, maybe you can practice inwardly that practice of bowing to the traffic jam when you come into it. Ah, remember, you're part of the traffic jam. You bow to yourself as well. Or to, you know, the difficult things and the beautiful things. Inwardly, that bow 
which makes the space of your Buddha nature, gives the space for your Buddha nature to shine. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.